You're listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich, And today I am talking to Tiffany R. Warren, who is the EVP Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Sony Music Group and president and founder of Ad Color and a 2022 Matrix Award winner. Congratulations and thank you for being here. Thank you, Julie. I'm super excited. I'm ready to dive in. <laughs> I love it. I am also ready to dive in and also extremely <laughs> excited. We start the conversations on this podcast asking our guests what they think the biggest challenge facing women in the workplace today is. What do you think that challenge is? Hmm. I think the biggest challenge, and it's, it's something I've often talked about, but also faced in my own career is the belief or having the belief in oneself match what they feel on the inside and what people see on the outside. Um, people have named it imposter syndrome. Uh, I work with an incredible therapist who has labeled it identity-based trauma. There's like serious terms for it, but it's really connecting between how you feel and how you're perceived. And even now, 25 years into my career, I, that gap, there's still a gap there. And I work every day to close it. So, you know, there's a lot of things facing. We can talk about societal pressures and a lot of the le legislation that has changed or is going to change that women um, enter the workplace or see work um, or, or define themselves in the workforce. But for me, that immediately came to mind when you asked that question is for me, the gap between uh, perception and the reality of how you feel and how you see yourself um, internally. Absolutely. And I see that all the time um, with women, especially. I think that's a great point. With, are there any, is there anything that you've discovered or anything you've done to like work on that? Like, I feel like it's so <laughs> fundamental. It can be so like just embedded ingrained, right? When you have imposter yeah. syndrome, it's like hard to get ahead of it. Is there anything? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is I stopped calling myself uh, a role model. There's just too much pressure. Uh, when, you know, people have called me role model. I actually just went online and created a sweatshirt that I wear when I go and work out and it says real model and people actually stop me and they think that I'm a real model. I was like, no, 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 no. I, I don't model, but like, and I have to explain the whole concept. And I'm like, maybe that that's the point is like when the women, when women stop me, I can like explain my whole thought process by what, you know, the reason why I call myself a real model, but it's taken me a long time to say that with confidence. I really do feel like I'm a real model for a lot of people. And I think being real, you know, just being realistic and transparent and really digging into who your authentic self is not, not the story you tell people. Cause I think sometimes we paint a character of ourselves that includes our professional achievements and, you know, who we may be dating. I mean, just all these other uh, characteristics. And so I just got bare bones. I'm like, what is my story? Like, who am I? And surprisingly <laughs> in writing that I like who I am and I'm just fine saying what, who I really am without having to constantly include a title here or an achievement there. You know, at 48, I've reached this like space of being just truly comfortable um, in my skin. And I used to think about that term and not really relate to it, but I know exactly what it means now. So I just work every day and I've gotten trainers and I mean, trainers literally so that I can be comfortable in my skin. Uh, uh, executive coach, uh, a therapist, um, a personal trainer. I've always was the coach and always was the mentor. And one day I just turned around and said, I need help. Um, and so I think the combination of all of that and, and doing some deep work, um, I really do feel comfortable saying I'm a real model. 
I love it. And can I have a sh that shirt? Can I? Ha can you sell those shirts? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I just went online and made it. Like you know, a rush order. To, I was like, boop boop. Had it by Monday. Wore it in the gym, and that was about two years ago. So I've had it ever since. <laughs> I love that. I never thought about like making a shirt to like get my message yeah. out there. That's yeah. a genius yeah. part yeah. of the toolkit. Honestly, it was for me. I, I only made like, I think I made one for me, of course. And then my niece, cause I'm obsessed with her, my mom and my sister, literally four people have the sweatshirt. That's it. I love it. When I'm going to see them, people are listening to this podcast. Those shirts are going to be popping up all over and you're going to be mad that you're not making awesome. money off of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> listen, listen, there's no new idea under the sun. Go for it. <laughs> I really love like thinking about what I, like the toolkit that you've created. Um, I just was at a conference and there, I was at a session actually about burnout, which I'm like, I can't believe we're at a session about burnout with marketers. It was very, very interesting. But one thing that the presenter said was like, you know, what that you can create for yourself or for your employees, like a toolkit, like it's not just one thing that prevents it. And she said like a therapist, a coach, like all the things you were like, you are the expert in this, whether you know it or not. Um, but I do, I, I think that's so important. And I think so many people aren't, we're not thinking that way. And our employers yeah. are not thinking that way. Or we're just afraid. And I think the, the biggest thing is that we talk about, you know, often here on panels, board of advisors. Um, for me, that's very passive. This is a group of people that I can get advice from. I really needed like training, like a trainer. Because I think often when you are elevated or you're in a very senior position, people at some point stop giving you feedback and stop telling you, you know, literally what to do, you know? So it's almost like, you know, you like, say you got elevated pretty early and I was elevated at 32 to the C-suite. I still had a lot of growing to do. I still had a lot of learning to do. Um, but because of my title and where I was placed, you know, um, there was less and less feedback. And so I think, you know, for me, I just decided if I'm going to grow and not feel stagnant, I have to, um, uh, get a different kind of group of advisors. And I went from advising or advisors to trainers. Um, and I'm just very grateful um, that I kind of reached out and, and formed that group uh, a couple of years ago. You just mentioned that you entered the C-suite very young. I really want to hear all about your journey, your career. So actually it would be great to, to kind of start early, like about, I'd love to hear about internships, college, first jobs, and then how you really got to where you are today. What has that journey looked like? Yeah, I mean, uh, this, this year is the 25th anniversary of my corporate career. Uh, and so that happened in May. Uh, and, it, and I didn't even have like a, a marker. I just one day woke up, I was like, oh my God, I've been working in corporate America for 25 years. My internship journey was pretty interesting. I started as a, a camp counselor. I, had, I was a at Cooper Community Center in Boston. Um, my group, I was in charge of three-year-olds. Um, so I honestly think that prepared me for everything um, <laughs> because managed three-year-olds, their lunch, their nap schedule, their playtime. And I was all of 14, wow. So yeah, that was my first job. Um, and it was, it was expected. My mom was like, you're turning 14 in August, you're going to get a job. And I had to get a, spe a special paperwork because I, I turned 14 in the middle, obviously towards the end of the summer. But it was fantastic. And so I just got this like bug of working. I loved it. So I went from there um, and participated in the Inroads program, which is an incredible program started in, 19, in the 70s um, to bring kids um, of color into corporate America, simply put, um, and to connect business 
uh, and the possibility of these amazing young people um, in, into having careers in business. And so I did that from 17 on and worked at Verizon when it was named three different things. Um, started out at Telephone and ended up at Verizon. And from there, uh, I knew marketing was something I wanted to do, but not, not I didn't want to do marketing, marketing. I wanted to be more creative. And so I left behind a lucrative internship um, to start my career in advertising. So in one summer, I went from $12,000, which is a lot back in the 90s, to 1500 um, literally $1,500 for the whole summer. That taught me how to budget because I had to pay for rent, uh, you know, uh, ride the bus and, and eat with $1,500 for three months. Uh, so did that and just loved advertising um, and then began my career in advertising in Boston uh, and then went from there uh, as the youngest manager of diversity at the 4As, which is a trade association trade association for advertising agencies um, at the, I just turned 25 um, and that began my career in New York City, uh, managing diversity for the, uh, for the entire advertising industry, no pressure. That sounds like a, a very small job. How did that kind of come about? Because that was early, right? And I mean, obviously this has, should always have been important in the industry, but these conversations are having much more now. Like how did that particular role, kind of, did it exist? Did you create it? Did they create it for you? Like how did that entry happen? Yeah, I think it, it existed. So I was, I think the fourth manager um, of this particular program, the Multicultural Advertising Intern Program. Um, so what I did was simply, I distinguished myself pretty early in my advertising career, when I was an account executive, I established my interest in DE&I. Simply put, because I was one of like two people or one of three people in the agency um, of color, particularly on the professional side. And so I've always been in environments where I've been one of two, one of three. So it wasn't uncomfortable for me, but I wasn't satisfied, if that makes sense. Like I wanted to bring as many people in as possible. And I've been that way since, two and a half, three years old, because um, I do have a report that survived, because I feel like I'm talking like I'm from the 1860s, <laughs> but I, I, was in, I was in Head Start in 1970 something, and they do these progress reports for you, and so in the progress reports, it, it's literally the makings of a, a diversity professional. I was very <laughs> interested in from different backgrounds. I always knew the new kids in the class. I was like the class mom. This is what they called me at three years old, so I think I had an inkling or that passion for supporting people who are marginalized or underrepresented was dropped in my mind and my heart very young. Um, and my grandmother and many, many people in my family are in the service industry, teachers, nurses. So I was just surrounded by that energy of service. And so I think particularly when it came to that particular job that brought me to New York and I got the job on my 25th birthday, um, and I also got an apartment in Brooklyn on my 25th birthday. So I feel like the stars aligned. Um, wow. I was the fourth. Um, but for me, it was a consequential move because it had every element that I wanted in a job. Travel, being able to be a mentor, mentoring or peer mentoring and mentoring was something that I've done all my life. And I'm just passionate about it. I didn't really feel like I had to wait to learn something, to teach something. And so I am, I, you know, I tell young professionals, don't wait till you get a VP in front of your name to be a mentor. You know, we don't have that much time. Like you only are given a certain amount of time to work in this life um, and to make an impression. So I always say start as early as you can um, because that mutual relationship, you learn more than you, than you impart. Um, but yeah, no, it was, 
you know, it had everything. It had the hallmarks of everything I wanted. And I put into the universe a couple of months before that I wanted a job that that changed the world. And then this popped up um, and this opportunity popped up four months later. So the interns that I have managed have gone on to do incredible things and I'm so proud of them. Um, but I'm just honored that I got to be part of their journey in the early part of their career. Um, and that's exactly what I wanted. Um, and to this day, that's still one of the most consequential roles that I've had in my career. Amazing. That's incredible. And, and where did it go from there? What were the next steps? Um, I think the next step was me again, manifesting. I think, uh, you know, I'm the queen of manifesting. So, you know, I kind of dropped in an ad age article. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Cause I was one of the youngest honorees at the time, um, woman to watch. I was like, yeah, you know, someday I want to be a chief diversity officer. And then boom, like a year later, <laughs> I got, um, a request, uh, to interview, to become the, the first chief diversity officer for Omnicom group. Um, which is an advertising holding company. And I was overwhelmed. I didn't think I was prepared. Um, it's the biggest job I would ever have in my life. It, uh, I would be put into the C-suite. Um, but I got this piece um, over me when I made the final decision. And as scary as it felt, I felt what would be scarier is if I said no. So I said yes and jumped right into it um, in 2009 um, and, and haven't looked back. Amazing. Oh my gosh. That's great. What a, what an amazing story. And actually so many of the, uh, podcast interviews I've been doing this year, there's a lot of talk about manifesting. I feel like we need a separate episode just about it because that has been the, like the theme, I would say, even of this podcast, um, that is, that that's an incredible journey. And I, um, you know, you were talking before imposter syndrome, like when things happen so young, I'm sure it was, it was so, so terrifying terrifying it shook my body how scared I was like literally shook my body I remember having to tell people that I really truly loved you know I I had created a family um, at Arnold which was the agency that I worked at and it was the first time in my career that I had to really like tell someone I'm leaving to go to you know people never really write about this like when you have to resign from a place that you really love like there's no manual um, you know, you have people who are badass that say, just rip the bandaid off. And, and I was just, I was just terrified, but I, in, in speaking um, to, you know, my inner circle there and saying, you know, I think it's time for me to go, you know, and I, that's the phrase I just kept repeating because that's what felt right to say. Um, and I think in saying that um, I gave the listener permission to have a mutual conversation about my future versus just saying I'm resigning. Um, so, you know, I kind of kept that in my mind over the years of, you know, when it's time, it's time. Um, and so I think that's a lesson that I learned in transitioning from, you know, the proper advertising agency world, um, to the holding company. There's just been this like, uh, continual, not elevation, but like steps. Like I went from agency to trade association to holding company. Um, so there was a, it seemed like there was an evolution there happening. And what was it like to be a young woman entering the C-suite? How did you feel you were perceived? How did people treat you? How did you overcome any barriers along the way? I think I was good because my mom did a really good job at placing me in activities, um, even educational opportunities that 
really challenge me um, in a way that most people don't get challenged until they're an adult. So living in Roxbury, which was deemed the inner city of, of Boston, but certainly has a lot of history of, of, of really great movements and mov moments. I knew that I came from a place of extreme cultural pride. I was surrounded by Puerto Rican, Cape Verdean, Haitian, um, multiracial, white, black, um, Caribbean. And I took all that pride with me when I entered my, uh, my private school, the Windsor School. And I got a deep sense of who I was because I was constantly challenged and I had to constantly face myself. And so by the time that, you know, I had to make decisions or I was put into situations like the C-suite um, very early, I knew I belonged there. Like, it's funny, I didn't have as much imposter syndrome back then because I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, I was just kind of like, you know, <laughs> someone, who sees, someone who sees Times Square for the first time, you're like, wow. Am I really here? It's so bright, or, you know, it's so bright here. So I was like, you know, um, and you could go back and read it in the article. I was labeled a diversity Pollyanna. Um, for those of you who are young, it's a Disney movie and Pollyanna is like the super positive person. And so, you know, I was always like, woohoo, right? So I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I think imposter syndrome creeps in a little bit later maybe in your career. And I'm speaking for myself that when you have more responsibilities and you're just like, wow. But in the beginning, it was like, let's do this. And I knew that I was, you know, breaking barriers and I was the first. Um, and when you're the first to do something, it's you're really fearless. Um, there's no other way to describe it. So I was the first um, to go to a private school in my family. I was the first to go to Bentley from my private school. You know, everybody went to Harvard and Yale and I was like, I'm gonna choose Bentley. I'm gonna go this way. Um, so I, I, I had a history of doing that. Um, so going into the C-suite early or early by some standards and then being not only a woman, but a woman of color, um, did it feel as like groundbreaking? Um, it, it was like people told me it was, but I didn't, I didn't actually feel that because I was just like one foot in front of the other every day. That's amazing. I have two daughters and I'm like listening to you. I'm like, how do I parent like your mother? <laughs> I need her parenting advice. I need your mom's parenting advice. You know what it is? It's super simple. It's super simple. My mom got out of my way. That's it. She was like, I'm going to get out of this child's way. Um, I'm going to help her with what she needs. And she also had, she also had the good fortune to give me an incredible godmother who was breaking all these barriers and workplace corporate America glass ceilings um, and they're, they've been best friends for 50, now it's 58 years. So she had the good fortune to choose like a co-pilot, you know, mm -hmm. where she felt she could give me this. There was a handover and my godmother would, you know, um, be that support and that, that coach for me. But the biggest thing was, um, and I tell people cause they often ask her is she, she really got out of my way. And, and the second thing is she kept me busy all the time, not not fake busy, but like, I always was involved in things, leadership things, um, mm -hmm. so that I could continue to grow as a leader. Love it. Taking, taking notes, taking notes over here. <laughs> you are also the president and founder of Ad Color. I'd love to hear all about that. Um, more about the organization, what it, what it's doing, what your involvement is now, how you're able to stay involved. Um, I want to make sure we touch upon that as well. Yeah, um, you know, the this, this story changes a little bit because I think as I, uh, as the 
organization matures, my thought process of why I founded it and what it means has matured as well. Um, my godmother told me when I started it, she's like, you're an underdog right now. This is the best time, like work out your kinks and like, you know, fail forward. And she gave me all this like good, good advice. And I'm grateful for it because that's what I did. And I think in the first, you know, decade, that's what we did. Um, and really the organization, organization was started from something that I mentioned earlier is that, that feeling when you're the one of none or one of two in an environment and everywhere I go and, you know, you can do a quick survey of all the boards and things that I'm involved in, but I always try to recreate family um, because it's, it's just, it can be very lonely and it can be very isolating um, pursuing something that no one's ever done before. So with that came up with ad color when early in my career, I was about 32. Um, so it was a couple of years before I entered the C-suite um, and simply put, I just wanted to create an award show that honored um, people of color in advertising, marketing, and media. That was our headline. The tagline was rise up, reach back, which came from just my whole life um, to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, so it's an iteration of that term that is used often, particularly in the African-American community. And then finally, you know, creating awards and categories that really span the lifetime of somebody's professional uh, career. So from rising star to lifetime achievement, I wanted to highlight those stories and those individuals to provide a blueprint for others to follow. Um, and so that was the lofty but initial goal. And I went to the president of, of the agency I was working at at the time. And even before so, before I signed the dotted line um, of my offer letter, I said, I definitely wanna come to your company, so excited. Um, but just one small thing. I would like to launch an award show while maintaining a full-time job. Thanks. So, so back then they were like, she's just, I mean, I don't know in their mind if they were like, is she really going to do it? Right. Um, I did. Um, so <laughs> that began the journey in 2005. Um, and here we are in 2022, 16 years later, um, celebrating our 16th annual awards in November. Uh, we went from having 250 people in a conference room in, in Boca Raton, which was great. We increased the diversity of Boca Raton by 800% that year. Um, <laughs> And then when we left, it decreased by 800%. Right. Um, it was one, one day of diversity. Great. One day. One day. Um, but, you know, I thought, hey, that's, you know, I was part of another conference. I'm like, let's just do it. And then fast forward, you know, we are hosting 1,700 folks um, from 11 different industries. And we not only have an award show, but we have a conference. We have a program called Ad Color Futures that, you know, picks 30 young people one to three years in their career and gives them just an incredible experience. We just launched Ad Color Leaders, which is for leaders 10 plus years, I believe. And um, it just keeps growing. But the beautiful thing about it is it's self-generated from a community, volunteer community. Um, the one common denominator we all have, um, anybody who's involved with Ad Color is that we all have day jobs, um, but this is a passion. This is our volunteer time. Um, so that's been how we've been fueled uh, for the past uh, 16, 17 years. Um, and it's been really beautiful. And the community is, is just gorgeous and not, you know, I'm sure from a physical standpoint, but what they, their souls, their hearts um, and their ability to keep giving back and inspiring the next generation of leaders is, is the thing that I love the most. That's incredible. That is, that's amazing. And 
I mean, it's so important, but it's not, I mean, and it's, it's easy to see that when all these volunteers come out and are donating their time. Like, I'm sure that is just, you've probably and met some incredible people. You what? I cry. I cry here. <laughs> like those that are listening, you don't want to see me ugly cry. It's really bad. Um, I'm famous for crying and then I lose my voice. And then all you hear is like a whistle, and, but I'm actually thinking I'm talking, but I'm actually whistling. But yeah, every year when I see people come in um, and register, like I'm literally hanging out at the registration desk and I'm like, hi, it's so good to meet you. I'm so happy you're here. And, you know, I, I think I'll be 90 doing that. So, so, you know, people may think they see the glam of it, but really the thing that like really grabs my heart and doesn't give my heart back until way after the event is over is like the faces of people who are coming up that escalator and, and attending for the first time. And just their excitement, it's pretty cool. Absolutely, and and how do you find the time? Like, how do you, you have a very busy job, and like you said, it's all volunteer, and I'm sure it's, you know, ebbed and flowed throughout the years in terms of what you've been able to give, but how do you, um, because I also, I really like to have side projects and, you know, this podcast in addition to my full-time job, but I think that's one of the questions we get the most, and, and I think people, um, you know, they really wanna feel fulfilled beyond their day job. So how do you balance that and find the time? Well, my day job and my and sort of my passion, um, you know, so I have a position, I have passion, they complement each other really, really beautifully. That's first and foremost. So if they didn't complement each other in that way, I would be really stretched. And I do think that people should be very, very concerned. Secondly, I'll put it, it's in such a place that it generates so much for itself that, you know, I almost consider myself a, a creative director versus a day-to-day person. Um, so that makes it easier as well. Um, I think the other piece too, is that when you know, and many people know this, like when you know that you've been given an assignment, um, and, uh, my friend Valicia says this famously, um, when you've been given an assignment, you, for whatever reason, God or your creator, whoever you pray to makes room for your gift in your body and in your mind. And that's when you know you're on assignment, when you know that there's room for the gift and there's always been room for the gift. And the gift for me has been ad color, like the way that I received it, the way it sat on my heart for a couple of years, the way that I bothered <laughs> anyone within list, like just writing it on napkins. I already had the logo. I was like, this is the logo. The bigger star is on top, the smaller star is on bottom. You're reaching for the smaller star. My friend had her first child. He's now in college, which definitely makes me feel old. But he literally was like an hour old. So, and I was in the hospital room. So I was like, yeah, so I was thinking of launching this thing called Ad Color. And she's like, I just had a whole human. Do you maybe want to talk about John Patrick? And I'm like, yeah, no, he's cute. But Ad Color, (laughs) (laughs) it was like that crazy. So, you know, it's a long answer to your question, but it's like, just the way that it's evolved and it just keeps, you know, I know for a fact that it's an assignment. So it doesn't, my, my world, my life and my body makes room for it. I love, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's really important. And to me also, I think that's very um, like advice that people can really use and that if you can get it done, like it's kind of meant, it's meant, meant to be done. And if it feels like the work yeah. or the craziness or the balance, it's like, okay, maybe it will. And also maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's the right time in the future. I think with women, yeah. our lives are evolving constantly okay Okay, I I 
I am on a listserv with a bunch of entrepreneurs and I swear like every six or seven months, we're like, we're just, it's too much. You know, there's, there's aspects. I'm not, I don't want to paint this pretty picture. There's aspects of it that are difficult, but you know, then we all, you know, gather ourselves and we're like, but we're on assignment. We're on assignment, you know? So that makes it feel a little bit better. Um, but honestly, even when being on assignment or you're, you know, making room for everything and it doesn't feel, you know, it feels weird, then just take a moment and take a beat and decide if you want to move forward. Absolutely. No, that's great advice. Congratulations on winning a Matrix Award. You are a Matrix Award winner and it's just the most exciting thing. I am so honored to be able to congratulate you in, well, I say in person on Zoom. Uh, What does winning a Matrix Award mean to you? It's pretty special. Uh, It's not something that I can tell you when I got the call, I thought there was an emergency. I didn't think that I was like, can I help you? Okay. Is there (laughs) someone else you'd like to reach? And it was from two of my heroes. And when, and then I I was like, well, I I hope one, you know, I didn't know. And then it was like, there was a a hysterical deafness at some point. um, Because I was like, wait, did you say me, me? So for me, I don't, I never pursue, I just am. And so when things like this come to me, what it feels like is that I'm given the opportunity or the universe is giving me an opportunity to increase my platform and my message. And my message is the tagline of Ad Color, which is as we continue to rise up, make room to reach back. And so that to me is what I get pumped about. Um, and then when I saw the list of honorees, I was like, okay, um, you know, it, it, it definitely humbled me. Um, Cause you know, I told you imposter syndrome comes in different forms. And so, you know, it's immediately beginning to tell myself I belong um, as part of this group. And I'm sure people who are listening and my friends who are listening will be like, oh my God, here she goes again. Um, But I do think that for me, when people ask like, what's your, what's, what's, what fuels you? I, I came upon this phrase early on in my career, which is stay humble, stay low. And I really kind of subscribe to that. It's like doing the work, do the work, do the work, do the work. And then you pop up every now and then. And this feels like a pop-up where I get to celebrate the work. And then I'll go and do the work, do the work. work. So that's that's what it feels like. And I've attended over years and supported people. And I was that ugly crier in the audience when I saw the stories and the the intros, you know, um, I wasn't like um, Eva Mendez and Hitch when, you know, that, that incredible scene where she makes that guttural noise. <laughs> he, tries to, he tries to connect her with her, her ancestor, the barber of, I can't remember. And she, <laughs> there are times when I've made that noise at award shows. Cause I'm just like, so like overcome, but um, I'll try to keep it together and not sound like I'm whistling when it's time for me to make my remarks. Um, but I do feel that there'll be young professionals in that audience who will see me and I'll become part of their history. Um, and that to me feels really special. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I cry. I mean, I always cry at the Matrix Awards. It's like, why am I wearing makeup? Like, why are we wearing makeup? They should be like, put on the invitation, no makeup, like sob your eyes out. And then afterwards, we'll just all have a group hug. Just- friend. My best friend is actually introing me. So she's the first person that, well, not the first person I met in advertising, but we worked for the same person. So we met because she had to come and have a meeting with our mutual boss. Um, and her name is Justine, but I nicknamed her Just Me because it felt like she didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I was just like, wow, she's, she's so mean. 
right? Since then, I can't do anything without her. She's one of my favorite people in the world. And, you know, she's risen to incredible ranks within advertising. Um, and we just keep pinching ourselves because we're still those two account executives um, who had a chance meeting um, at a Boston agency. So I just felt like she was the most important and probable um, person to intro me at the, at the awards. That's, uh, that's going to be, I'm already, I mean, I'm already crying, yeah. obviously. Exactly. Like, are you kidding me? Exactly. And exactly. I hope you tell that huge ballroom that you called her just mean, because that's like the funniest thing ever. And she'll definitely appreciate it. She will not. I will start your, let's start your speech with that. Okay. Like I will be there and I will be expecting that. That is, that's okay, amazing. I will literally say, thank you, Jasmine. And let me tell you why I call her that. Yeah. Yeah, wait. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That's incredible. I'm so excited. So you are an incredible mentor. Like you have really, I mean, you've started programs to help people grow in their careers. Who are some of your mentors and how have they helped you and what kind of advice have they given you? Yeah, it's interesting. It hasn't changed much um, for the entirety of my career. I'm much like my mother in the sense that, and also it's probably a symptom of my sign. I'm a proud Leo, but I'm very loyal. Um, so I've met these individuals when I was in my 20s, very early, and they've been so consequential. So such a safe place to work out who I was becoming. Um, so Mark Shushan, Stevenson Shoshan, who um, is the outgoing chair of Ad Color, but it's been the chair since uh, we started um, uh, as a official org. Um, incredible, incredible marketer, um, advertising legend, and he's Coach Mark. So he literally is like, that's what he does now because he's so good at it. Uh, and he's just been incredible. Um, and then Constance Cannon Frazier, she was a professor at Howard when I met her. I just won my first big industry award. She was the first, we were the first two people at the reception. I think there was also maybe the bartender and like the president of the organization. And she very consequentially told me, cause I was super excited. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna apply to go to grad school. You know, I gotta get that edge. And she was like, you know, I think you're okay. I think you're good. Like give it a try professionally and then see how you feel. Um, and I'm grateful to her. You know, I think uh, people have different roads. Um, and so meeting her at that time was pretty consequential. And she's been at every important um, event, um, decision um, in my life since then. Um, and, you know, she's raised two incredible children. Um, and those are my two mentors. Those are my two North Stars. I do have many people, you know, in different circles who pour into me. But those are the two people that at the end of the day, if I said who had the most consequential impact on my career, um, it would be those two. That's fabulous. You're lucky to have such amazing, amazing mentors. The field that you work in, we talked about this a little bit earlier, like it is growing a lot, um, uh, you know, and awareness and roles at companies as it should. What advice do you have for young professionals wanting to pursue careers in, you know, diversity and inclusion roles? And, and if they're, you know, if they're working in other parts of communications, how can they convert the skills that they have to be working in those roles? Oh, communications. How can I compare how important communications is to DNI? Um, it's like if DNI was undergrad, then comms is masters. Like 
having that skill of communications is just unbelievably important because of the matter of what you're communicating um, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. All of those concepts are difficult. All of those concepts are ever-changing. So having a mastery on how to communicate tough subjects and make them approachable is like an A1, A1. So you are, you're already, you already 60% in. My undergrad, I graduated uh, liberal arts with a concentration in communications. So I rely heavily on that minor. It's very major in my life, but it was a minor um, in terms of my education. I, I do think that D and I evolved so quickly in the last two years. Um, so D and I is no longer just D and I, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. So the social justice aspect has been added. Um, so I no longer can just say D and I, I say D and I and J. Uh, and that part of it has been largely under the remit, not the justice part, but social impact under CSR. It's now squarely part of the role of being um, in DEI. I think the best advice I would say is have a very practiced self-care regimen, very practiced. Because if you do not, then there's going to be a misalignment and I'll tell you where. There's three states of consciousness. And I just learned this two weeks ago and I'm like, such a fan of this language, but there's three states of consciousness, particularly when you're in DNI that you think of every day, institution, self, and community. Any, there's on any given day, self can come first, then institution, then community. And then another day, it'll be all community, no self, and some of the institution. There's always, a, you always have to pick, unfortunately. When there's misalignment in any one of those three states is when you really have to load up on self-care. Um, because there's always going to be conflict between those three things. And so whether you're one to three years into being a chief diversity officer or director of diversity or director of DEI comms, because that's a big growing um, discipline, I say self-care, 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 self-care. I, I just keep it that straightforward. And also be studied. Things evolve so quickly. Make sure you're studied. Make sure you're looking at research from some of the big consulting companies, obviously HBR is a great tool. There's many different tools out there that can give you the latest and greatest um, in terms of what's going on in DEI, but be studied. Um, and most of all, understand that you're on the front line. You are just as much a frontline worker, um, but you're, it's in a different way. Um, and it's just as important. So yeah, those would be my three. That's great. Feels also like attainable of someone who wants to go into this career that it's not like, okay, go back to school and learn all these things. Like you can learn yourself and you may already have a, a lot of the skills. No, that that's really fabulous. And, and what improvements in diversity have you seen in industry? Even, I mean, I would ask over your career, but you've been doing this for so long. I would say even in the past couple of years that the focus, you know, has been so strong and, and what are you, where do you still think there are gaps? What can we be doing to, um, what are some of the efforts maybe you're working on? to increase diversity in the workplace? I think it's cyclical. You know, uh, I, I, I will say that the improvements are that there's more of us. I just attended um, the Martha's Vineyard CDO Summit. It was the first of its kind. There were 124 chief diversity officers from wow. 20, 24 different industries. If that took place four years ago, it would be one third of that, I promise you. And the advancements in conversation language as well as in where this role is placed within the organization. I remember, I think it was CNN or CNBC. I, I think it was CNBC, excuse me. I was interviewed and asking about this role um, and some of the you know, setbacks. And this was during a time right before 
I want to say it was right before COVID. I could be wrong, but I spoke sort of the truth. I said, it's under-resourced, undervalued, and underpaid, right? And I was just speaking, honestly, this was three years ago. I don't necessarily, the, the good thing is I don't, I don't think I can say that anymore. I think it's evolved to such that maybe two out of those three things are real. Um, and they are very much resourced, very much valued, um, and very much compensated. So I do think there's been a shift in how this is viewed, and it truly is seen as a C-suite position. Um, because many of my colleagues felt that they were not, um, they were in the C-suite, but they were not seen. Um, and that C was more like S-E-E -E versus C. So I think that's been the shift, um, and I'm happy about that. That's, I mean, that's fabulous. That's incredible to hear. It's really, um, I know you've been working hard at this a lot for a long time. It must feel really good to see it, to see it moving. Feels good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if someone listening to this podcast is not working in that space particularly or in their organization, or they don't even have that, you know, role in their organization, what are some things that you think people could be doing to improve diversity in their own workplace? Just you know, in, in day in day to day life, um, or be pushing to get kind of a bigger a bigger movement in place. Yeah. I think the first step is to be really honest about where you're at, both personally and from an organization standpoint. Where are you at in your journey around diversity, equity, inclusion? We had a lot of people become allies and advocates during um, during and after um, the unfortunate um, death and murder of George Floyd, but it was, but it, it, this is a lifelong commitment, right? So it's like, where are you at personally? And then once you get an assessment of like where you're at, you'll understand and be very observant about where your organization is at. It's no longer okay for a leader not to have a DEI remit, not to have it be solid, solidly part of their operating system. You cannot leave this to chance. You cannot leave it to somebody else. It has to be part of a leader's operating system. So you know, there's many different ways. It depends on the size of the organization, where they're at, the maturity of DEI, not only within the organization, but even in the place that they sit, the city, the state, the country. You know, there's so many ex there's so many factors. There's regional differences, there's global differences. But I think the easiest thing to do is start with yourself um, and unlearn and relearn. Uh, I've had to unlearn and relearn stuff that I thought was tried and true to become a deeper and better advocate. Um, for for everyone, you know, there's always, like I said earlier, presumption that when you've reached a certain level or you have a certain title, that you don't have to learn anymore, and that's just not true. So I think learning is at the heart of establishing any DEI initiative. Is take a look at yourself and then emanate that uh, into the organization that you that you're a part of. Unlearn and relearn. I love that. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm definitely going to take that away from this. <laughs> And then relearn it. And then learn it again. <laughs> Undo it, redo it. We can do every, honestly, as you're saying that, I'm like, mm, where else in my life should yeah. I be applying this? Yes. Unlearn. Yes. And relearn. I think I need to unlearn and relearn my love for pasta. <laughs> never, yeah, never, definitely relearn it or continue to learn it. <laughs> learn it more is what I would say. Learn it more, yeah. <laughs> So we love um, when we're talking to women who are working in the C-suite executives who interview tons of people, but like have not sat through a job interview in God knows how long. Um, we love to ask them, have a little fun and do classically annoying interview questions. So 
questions that people always ask at interviews that you know, like that there's some, you know, particular answer the interviewer's looking for. Um, so I always invite our guests to either answer this how you would really answer it, or you could answer it how you think someone should answer it if they're having an interview to like land the job. Um, so the first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Interesting. Well, I love answering this because I just did my commencement speech uh, at my high school. So, oh my gosh, yeah. it's been 30 years. So I came back, I, wow. brought my niece, I brought my family, you know, and just having my niece in my peripheral and, and having her clap at certain things, I still get emotional about it because I'm like, does she really understand? Yeah, she does. Um, so, you know, I can't. I think I told this to the crowd, but I had a writer's block and it came to me the night before the, the speech came to me the night before. And basically, you know, it kind of put my life by decades into a certain like timeline. So what I told these incredible women that were going out to take on the world, they were 17, 18. Um, I said, listen, in your teens or in your tens, it's about finding your nerve. That was the name of my speech, finding your nerve. Um, I said, it's about finding your nerve, right? That's what you do in your teens. Um, you try out for lacrosse, you, you get your first boyfriend. In your 20s, um, you have all the nerve. This is all the nerve that you found in your teens. And in your 20s, you have all of it. Um, you have all the nerve, all the estrogen, you have all of it. Um, and so you are conquering the world. I said, in your 30s is when people say to you, uh, Tiffany, you have some nerve. You have some nerve starting ad color while having a day job. Who are you? Some nerve. And in your forties, which is the fun part. And what was great about this speech is that parents, both the dad and the mom were like checking to see where they were in terms of the, the nerve meter. Um, but forties is where you have one nerve. Um, so right now I have just one nerve and everyone sits on that nerve. <laughs> you're getting on my nerve. <laughs> yeah, you're getting on my one nerve. And yes, you're getting on my nerve, not even nerves nerve. And then I wrap it up by saying in your fifties, you, and I, I try to be nice because it was a proper, you know, parental crowd. I said, uh, you can figure out what I'm going to say, but in, uh, in your fifties, you have zero nerves to give you're done. Um, you can replace nerve with something else. And so right now in where I'm approaching, I have two more years until I hit 50. It's like, I'm, I think I'm, I got to zero nerves early. And what I'm excited about is to really challenge myself um, to really continue to relearn, unlearn, um, reconfigure, get sharper, more efficient, um, more focused, less stressed, um, and just radiate and like be comfortable with who I am um, and actually try to win back more time. And I told, um, you know, this young crowd, I said, you know, in your 40s and 50s, you're going to be struggling to win back your time. So just be very careful about how you spend your time. And so I would say in five years, I'll be winning back more of my time um, to do the things that I love. Um, so I don't know where I'll be career wise, but I think if I'm just going to speak in terms of my life, it would be um, to win back time. And time is more precious to me because as of three weeks ago, um, a um, cross fingers breast cancer survivor. So this past year, I went through not chemo or anything. They got it early. You know, I have to um, take <laughs> tamoxifen and anyone who's listening, who's ever been through that journey knows what I'm going through now. But um, time is really, really 
more important to me. Um, so yes, I'm a little funny with the nerves and stuff, but honestly, um, I'm trying to win back as much time as possible because, a, you know, a year ago, I didn't know. Um, so I share that with anyone listening is just really be committed and honest with your time um, and, you know, put yourself at the center. Um, I think people often give away their time because they think that's how people want them to spend it, but just put yourself in the center um, and then uh, everything else will fall into place. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's like all, all of it, all of it. And I'm so happy that you are, are healthy and um, have a bright future. Yeah. Speaking of time, unfortunately, somehow we run out of it for this interview, which I've just enjoyed talking to you like so, 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 so much. This has been incredible. Where can our listeners find you? Like, where do you like to be found on social media or LinkedIn or wherever? I think LinkedIn is my, my happy place. So okay, yeah, just uh, reach out to me through LinkedIn. I have quite a nice following and I like to muse on there. Um, and it's just, I like that space. So um, definitely find me there. Um, I'm not really an Instagram. I mean, I have an Instagram. I keep it private, even though everyone's like, make it public. Um, but I have to have some space for myself. Yep, absolutely. LinkedIn is, LinkedIn is definitely my jam. Awesome, great. And in the one 30 seconds we have left, is there one great piece of career advice that you'd like to share with our listeners, your favorite piece? Um, it actually comes from uh, Elaine Welteroth. She uh, wrote a book, More Than Enough, and I've told everyone that I've, I've coached um, since that that book came out that they're more than enough, you're enough. You know, I think we often get messages that we need to be this or extra. Um, and certainly if that's your destiny, do that. Um, but um, in the meantime, you're enough. So that would be my advice that you're enough. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And congratulations again on your Matrix Award. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grizet, Mandy Carr, Shania Anderson, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to everyone at New York Wiki for helping us and for supporting our show. For more information about Women Heard, go to nywiki.org slash podcast. That's nywici.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.